God, you're good. Lord, and we thank you, Lord, that you're good, and you're good, and you, you love us. Um, and Lord, as we open your word, may we never forget those truths, Lord, and, but rather they, may they guide us as, as we read your word. Lord, help us to understand these, these commands that we read, Lord, and how they are meant to bring us life. Um, and I, Lord, I ask and pray, Lord, that that's exactly what we would find tonight. We would find life. Um, so, Lord, guide us in this time. Bless us in this time, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week, we began looking at Exodus 20. We began looking at the Ten Commandments. Uh, and if you remember, that particular section started with these verses. So, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. And if you've got a Bible, then... Um, do turn to one. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the back. Um, and it says uh, this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God has brought his people out of Egypt. And he has set them free from slavery. And it is important to remember that he gave them the law, after he sets them free. He redeems them, he demonstrates his love towards them and it's only after doing so that he now calls them to obey. It's not to, not to obey to earn God's saving love but rather in response to it. And the reason he does so is, he, is because he wants his people now that they have been set free, now he wants them to live free. Because as bad as their physical slavery was, their spiritual slavery went deeper and that spiritual slavery is sin. Sin in slaves. And God calls his people to no longer live lives that are defined by sin, but rather he now calls them to live lives that are defined by him. And these commands he gives to his people were intended to give them life, to lead them to life, and I believe the same is true for us. And the first four commandments are all about our, our vertical relationship with God. And then the remaining six are about our relationship with other people, so last week we looked at the former of those two groups and now we get to look at the latter. We get to look at our relationship with other and as, each other. And as I mentioned last week, essentially these ten commandments are, are kind of like the foundation, kind of the principal ones. Yes, there are many more commands, many more important commands that he gave, but oh, these are some, like, some key ones, kind of like the foundational ones, which kind of sum up the whole essence of, of the others. Um, and as I say, today we get to look at the relationship between us and other people. So would you read with me? It's Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 to 17. And these are our verses for today. It says this, and this is Exodus 20, so Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 to 17. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour and you shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. While I was uh, attending uh, the, the church I went to while I was at uni up in Leeds, uh, basically while I was there, they had, uh, in essence, a mission statement which I found helpful, which was this, which was to know God and to make him known. Now, we are called as Christians to know God and make him known. And it was great because it captured the, the vertical relationship with God but then also our horizontal relationship with other people. As we know God vertically, then we seek to make him known horizontally to other people. And we see a similar pattern, if you like, in the Ten Commandments. So if you, in essence, if you wanted to sum up the Ten Commandments, it could be perhaps said like this, we're called to love God and then called to love others. And, and, and think about it, this is exactly what Jesus says when he's questioned about the commandments. In Matthew 22 and verse 34, it says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So here the Pharisees have come to test Jesus, and they, and they asked this question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And this is how Jesus responds. Jesus says to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love others. And today we're going to be looking at the loving others part, the loving of our neighbour as ourselves. And God begins with our relationship with our parents. Where he says, honour your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We are to honour our father and mother, to, to in essence, to treasure our parents, to respect our parents, to place great value on them. And the interesting thing is that our honouring of them does not appear to change whether they have been good parents to us or not. God does not say if your parents have been faithful, then you honour them. He just says to honour them. In as much as it depends on us, we are to honour them. And yes, yes, for a, for a healthy relationship, there has to be input on both sides. But what Christ often calls us to do as Christians is to act in a certain way to a certain standard, regardless of the actions of others. Okay, so for example, when he says in, in Romans 12, in verse 17 to 18, where he says this, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Love how Paul puts it there. He says, if it is possible, as, as, do as much as you can to live peaceably with all. Do what you can. You, yes, you, can, you cannot necessarily force people to act in a certain way, but you can choose how you act. And likewise, you can't choose or force your parents to act in a certain way, but what you can affect is, you can affect how you choose to act, how you choose to live. In the choices you are able to make, choose to honour them. And when we grow up in a society, yes, where, where some parents want nothing to do with their children. They have made that devastating choice not to be a part of their child's life. And in such situations, you can't, you can't force them. And all you can do is entrust that situation to your heavenly Father. You pray for them. You ask his help to forgive them. And if by God's grace they ever seek to change, then be available to, to seek reconciliation. But what does it, for the majority of us, what does it look like to honour our parents? And, and may I suggest that how we honour our parents, how we honour them will change over the course of our lives and the, and the different life stages that we find ourselves in. And, and, and in Ephesians gives us a bit of insight into this area, and I think it's a really good place to start. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 to 4 says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One of the primary ways we honour our parents, especially when we are children, is, is through submission. As children, we are called to obey our parents, to submit to their instruction, to submit to their leadership. And, and the key to this is where Paul says that phrase, in the Lord, where he says, obey your parents in the Lord. Essentially, God is our highest authority. And in his grace, he places people in our lives and grants them authority over us. And this can be, this can be bosses, this can be leaders, this can be government, this can be parents, and that's just to name a few. And we are called to submit to these lesser authorities unless they're calling us to step outside of our highest authority, which is God himself and his word. All right, so, for example, because a parent is not in ultimate authority over their children, God is, if a parent asks their child to sin, the child must not, the child must refuse, the child must say no, and for the, even, even for this reason, for example, if a parent commits a crime, their child can and, and should call, call the authorities, should call the police. And, and, and as I say, in those different areas where we're called to submit to people who have been placed in authority over us, we submit to them as we submit to the Lord. So we're submitting to him our highest authority 
and essentially those in authority over us have just um, derived authority from him. So he's our ultimate authority, but he allows people below him to be in authority over us for the benefit of our flourishing, for the benefit of our life. But when those lesser leaders call us to do something which goes against him and his ultimate authority, that's when we say no. That's when we say, no, I will not obey what you say because it goes against what God says and God is our highest authority. So here Paul is quite clear. He says, hey children, kids, obey your parents. And the question becomes this. As we grow up, as we move from being children to adults, are we still under the same call of submission as when we were younger? And I think the answer to this question, you have to go back to Genesis to find the answer. So Genesis 2 and 22 to 25 says this, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is what happens, God creates man and from man he then creates woman. And then God brings the woman to the man and the man is just like so, like taken aback by this, he actually starts to sing. And guys, and girls, you will know that guys don't sing. Well, generally guys don't tend to sing, okay? So for him to sing is a big deal. And anyway, so he's overtaking. He's like, wow, woman, man, this is awesome. And then we read this. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There comes a time when a man must leave his parents and be united to his wife. And this is the beginning, the beautiful beginning of a new family. The father's responsibility of caring and providing for his daughter now becomes the responsibility of the husband. And likewise, the authority that the parents once had changes. And we are no longer called to submission in the same way we were when we were children living under their roof. They don't have that same authority over us as they used to. However, what I would say is this, is if we have been given this new freedom, perhaps we've been given it not so we could honour our parents less, but rather so we could be freed to honour our parents even more faithfully. And I think one of the best ways we do this is by seeking their counsel. It's inviting them into the big life choices that we often face. What career should I pursue? Where should I live? Who should I marry? And it doesn't mean we have to follow their counsel because we remember our ultimate submission is to Christ. We're called to ultimately follow him but involving them demonstrates your respect of them and their views. Especially in the case when they're, when they're godly people as well, when they're a godly family, I think we should be listening to their counsel even more. But even if they don't know the Lord, there is something respectful and something loving about saying, hey look, this is where I'm going in life. This is what I feel the Lord is calling me to. And I just want, I just want to tell you about that. I want to tell you that and I want to ask you some questions of maybe some things that you went through in life as well so I can learn from you. And then the other ways we honour them is simply by loving and serving them, especially as they get older. As our parents become older, they will naturally need 
more help. And this becomes a great opportunity for us to honour them. And sometimes that will be costly. I remember, um, personally, myself, on my, I remember on the day that my grandmother passed away a couple of years back, and my granddad, as you could, and as and anybody would be in his situation, he's already frail, and he's completely devastated by having to say goodbye to his wife and, and his best friend of so many years. He was distraught, and destroyed as many of us would be. And then to see my mum serve him, to see my mum help dress him and get him like, into bed was, was truly humbling, especially because she was mourning too. I, could, I mean, I could see that that was that was. That was sacrificial, that was costing her and that in part is what it means to honour our parents. So let us begin to pray this week asking God to show us by his Holy Spirit, hey Jesus, how can I best lovingly serve and honour my parents? And, and as we do so, both, our par- both us and our parents end up being blessed for it. You see what Paul says where he says, this is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is the first command we see which actually comes with with an immediate promise attached to it. See, God cares about the family unit. He wants them to flourish both individually and corporately And this is because he loves them, because each life, young or old, is precious. Each life, young and old, is sacred. And it is for this reason that God gives us the next commandment. And he says, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. God prohibits the unlawful taking of innocent life. And many translations will translate the word, as I said, as murder rather than kill. And this is because there is a significant, there is a difference between the two. I heard my brother kind of sum it up this way, which I think is very helpful, is all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. So all murder is killing, but not not all killing is murder. There are times, often in extreme cases, where God allows the taking of another person's life. Now, the majority of us will never, prayerfully, will never have to face such situations. But this can be in the form of of war. It can be in the form of capital punishment, as we see sometimes in scriptures. This can be in the form of self-defense or when God or an angel is the one taking the life as judgment, as, as creator and the giver of life. God has the authority and the right to take life, but we don't. He has the authority, and there are moments where he calls us to act on his authority, but rather it is, it is his right, because he is the giver of life, and only he should be the taker of it. So we can ask ourselves the question, okay, how does this apply to us? The majority of us will most likely never be prayerfully in a situation where we come close to taking someone's life, and we could easily think this command... This is easy to keep. Lord, national murder, that makes sense. I would never take somebody else's life. But I think if you look deeper, as Jesus chooses to, there's a heart behind this which we are all often guilty of. 
says this, Matthew 5, 21 and 26. He says, You have heard it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And then Jesus continues, he says this, and, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. And first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come in terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Jesus really doesn't hold back punches, does he? Once again, he goes straight to the heart. He says, if you have, if you have anger and if you have hate towards another person, you're guilty of having a murderous heart. You're guilty of breaking this commandment. If the heart of these commands is to love our neighbour, when we hold hate towards someone, we are, we are doing the very opposite of loving We're doing the very opposite of what it calls and what it means to love them. And John the disciple essentially says the exact same thing. In in 1 John 3.15, he says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Christians, men and women who have Jesus living inside them, the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, eternal life abiding in them, should live a life defined by love and not by hate. And if we find ourselves hating someone, we are acting in a way that does not align with God, it does not align with his heart. And the very next verse after this is all about the sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrates to us. The very next verse, of, so First John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus' life was the complete opposite of hate and murder. It was one of love, it was one of self-sacrifice and our response to our struggles with anger and hate should be one of love and one of reconciliation. In essence, this is what we do. We look to the cross, we look to the good news of the gospel, and as we glimpse and experience Jesus' transforming love, we in turn love others. We in turn seek to reconcile, just as we saw in Matthew's text. Jesus goes right to the heart, of what it is to have a murderous heart. So we need to be like, Lord, is this me? And if this is me, we repent and we turn from it. But there's also, uh, I think, another way in which our culture as a whole ends up breaking this command. And I think it comes in, in the area of abortion. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to talk in depth about this issue. But it's likewise, it's so serious, we can't just brush it aside. If we think about every day, countless 
countless babies are terminated while in their mother's womb. And the question becomes, is this right? Is this right? Or is this the taking of an innocent life? Is this murder? And, and the question comes to this is, what, in essence, it boils down to this. As David Platt, uh, passed in the States, in his book, Counterculture, he, expl- he, well, he explains it this way, where he says this. The, que- the key question that we, must, we all must answer and the question that determines how we view abortion is this. What is contained in the womb? Is it a person or is it merely an embryo, a fetus? And virtually every other question and every single argument in the abortion controversy comes back to this question. What or who is in the womb? And once this question is answered, everything else comes into perspective. And yes, think about it. As Gregory, oh, it's got a really interesting name. Gregory Kolk points out, he says this, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. And some people will contend this. They will say that the unborn is not a person or that the unborn is merely a person who has the potential to become human, whatever that means. Again, if this is true, the argument is over. No justification for abortion is necessary. However, as Colk writes, if the unborn is a human person then no justification for abortion is adequate. And as I say, this is, this is a huge subject, which unfortunately we're not going to have time to cover all the ins and outs of it in the span of what we have left. But I think it only does come to that question, do we class that which is within the womb, do we class that person, or do we class that baby, that fetus, as a person? And if we do, we have to come to terms with when we're terminating that life, that is in essence murder. And now, when we, in light of what we read in the Scripture, what we read in the Bible, I'm just going to read you a few verses, and I want to, even in your own hearts and minds, begin to ask the question, as we read this, these verses, can we truly say that the unborn is not a human person? It says this, and let me go through a number of these. Psalm 139. Verse 13 to 16 says this, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, and this is, this is David speaking, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Jeremiah 1, 4-5 says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 22, verse 9-10 and 10 says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breath. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Galatians 1.15 But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. 
Isaiah 49 verse 1, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. And then further down in verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. And then even when we see in the account of John the Baptist, and when Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, it says this in Luke 1.15, speaking of John the Baptist, For you will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In light of these verses, and I'm sure we can spend time looking at others as well, in light of these verses, surely there's only one conclusion. Surely there's only one conclusion that in the eyes of Scripture, in the eyes of God, the unborn is a person, the unborn is precious, the unborn is a valuable, precious, sanctified, and holy, and with and precious life. And as David Platt continues to say a few pages later, where he says this, everything, everything revolves around what is happening in a mother's womb, and scripture is clear that that womb contains a person being formed in the image of God. Any distinction between the unborn and a person, or a human and a person for that matter, is both artificial, it's unbiblical. God recognises the unborn as a person and designs the unborn for life from the moment of conception. And while our culture is continually pushing against this idea, it's not possible to believe the Bible and deny that the unborn are persons. So what do we do? What do we do if we find ourselves in this situation? We find ourselves guilty whether it be murder of the heart or murder of action, in either situation we're called to turn to Christ. We turn to him in repentance and we watch as he forgives our sin and then he empowers us to change. He changes us from being, essentially from being murderers to missionaries and the greatest example of that is Paul himself. The Apostle Paul who stands, watches and complicit in the murdering of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, would one day say this, in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Essentially Paul says that if you think you are beyond the saving and the transforming grace of Christ then look at my life. Look at who I was, a wretch of a sinner and how Jesus has changed me and that is our hope. Jesus is our hope. God desires us to trust him with all areas of our life. And as the author, and as the creator of life, he knows how it works better than us. 
And this also includes the area of sex and romance, which the next command focuses on where it says, you shall not commit adultery. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this, sex affects our heart, our inward being, not just our body. Sin, which is first and foremost a disorder of the heart, therefore has big impact on sin. Our passions and desires for sex now are very distorted. Sex is for whole life self-given. However, the sinful heart wants to use sex for selfish reasons, not self-giving. And therefore, the Bible puts many rules around it to direct us to use it in the white ray. The Christian sex ethic can be summed up like this. Sex is for use within marriage between one man and one woman. And as God created sex as a gift to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in covenantal marriage. And he puts these boundaries in place for our joy, for our flourishing. It is to give us life, it is not to rob us of life. And whenever we take sex out of this context, the Bible calls it sin. And in the Ten Commandments, God specifically focuses, focuses on the sexu- sexual sin in the context of adultery. It is wrong to sleep with another person's spouse. And we can easily think, oh, I would, I would never do such a thing. But once again, Jesus reveals the truth. That though we may not be guilty of the physical act of adultery, we can very easily be guilty of adultery of the heart. Matthew 5, verse 27 says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Looking lustfully at somebody who is not your spouse is sinful. And when such a person does so, they are guilty of committing adultery. So looking at the woman down the street, fantasizing about people, watching pornography, all these things and many more class as adultery. And Jesus Jesus says that such a position is so serious that it has to be addressed. In the rest of those verses, he, he says, he simply says, look, if whatever causes you to sin, get rid of it. You may not think it, has, it is a problem, but Jesus says otherwise. And it will eventually lead to destruction. As we looked at on, on Sunday, in James 1, 14 to 15, he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and, in, and enticed by his own desire. Then when, desi- sorry, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and, when, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that's James 1, 14 to 15. In essence, all physical acts of adultery always begin with adultery of the heart. It's always a heart issue. And you just have to look at the the story of David and Bathsheba to see what happens when we don't address the heart, where we allow that to grow. It really does truly, as James says, it leads to death. So then once again, and and basically what I want to do is I want to 
as we read these commands, as we realise how we've fallen short of them, I want to continually remind us and bring us back to the Gospel, bring us back to how Jesus forgives us, but then how Jesus then calls us to change as well. And when it comes to the area of adultery, what do we do? If we find ourselves guilty of such a thing, whether that be adultery of action or adultery of the heart, once again, Jesus calls us to turn to him, to turn to him, to confess and repent our sin, to forsake it and receive his forgiveness. It says this, and every time I think of this, I'm constantly reminded of the woman who is caught in the act of adultery. The woman's caught in the very act. She's brought before Jesus. And it says this uh, in, in John's Gospel, John chapter 8. And once more, Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Essentially, all her accusers, the, the people who brought the woman to Jesus to try and, to try and trip Jesus up, Jesus says to them, hey, he who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And then Jesus goes back to writing on the ground. We don't know what he writes on the ground. Uh, We really don't know and people kind of try and come up with things but the truth is we just don't know. And as he's writing one by one, these people leave until she's left alone. And then Jesus stands up and says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This woman is fully guilty, caught in the very act of adultery, and yet Jesus could say, these life-giving words, neither do I condemn you. And the reason he could say such radical, such life-changing words is because he was going to die on the cross for her sin, for her act of adultery and for our acts as well. He would take the punishment that she deserved. He would take the punishment that we deserve so we could be forgiven. And then he would rise again rise again on the third day and he calls both her and us to sin no more, to leave our life of adultery behind. So if you are guilty, turn to Jesus, accept his forgiveness, hear those words, neither do I condemn you, then by his grace become new people, become changed people who no longer lust after other people but rather people who trust God with every area of their life, including their sex life. Now God goes from focusing on on people and our relationship to people and now he's going to focus, continuing kind of in how we interact with people and how we interact with people and their stuff. In the next one where he says, you shall not steal. He brings our attention to how we treat other people and their possessions and he says that you need to know this. And when you take something that does not belong to you, whether that be secretly, whether that be by force, you are stealing. And in the eyes of God, such an act is sinful. The value of them, the value of the item 
in question does not change the truth. And it's true, you will most likely face greater consequences for stealing something of more expensive value. But whether it's a pen or a car, stealing is still stealing. And in the eyes of God, it is wrong. Stealing goes against the very nature and the very character of who God is. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The ultimate thief in the Bible is Satan. His sole purpose is to steal, kill and destroy. And when we steal, we are reflecting more of his character than we are God's. God didn't come to rob us of life, but he came to give us life. Life in all of its abundance and when we steal we rob not only other people but we also rob ourselves of experiencing true abundant life. And it also reveals what we truly care about. You see, when we steal something from someone with our actions we display that we treasure getting that object more than the people it offends. When we steal, we care more about obtaining that thing, that item, that possession, than we do offending the party that we are stealing it from. And in essence, you cannot truly claim that you care and love someone if you repeatedly steal from them. Romans Verse 13, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 30, 9 to 10 says this, for the commandments, so the commandments, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and other commandments are summed up in this word. So these commandments where it's about between us, between people, can be summed up in this way. In one way you can sum these up, these commandments up, which is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore... Love is the fulfilling of the law. When we choose to steal, we do the opposite of loving our neighbour. When we steal, we are doing them wrong and breaking God's law. And how sad it is in those moments where we do steal, when we take what is not our own, how sad it is that we, we display that we are so consumed by getting this thing that we don't care who it affects, who it hurts. But by God's grace, once again, we find hope for the thief. We find, as we said, we find hope for the adulterer. We find hope for the murderer. And we find hope for the thief. And it's all found in Jesus. Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 27, verse 35 to 38, says this, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. When Jesus was crucified, he was not alone. Two other men were also crucified with him. And Matthew's account tells us that both these guys were robbers. 
And at first, both men are mocking Jesus while they all hang there, slowly dying. But one of them begins to see what's truly going on. In Luke's Gospel, we read this, one of the criminals, and this is Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus offers forgiveness and eternity with him, even to those guilty of stealing, just like this man, just like us. And this is all possible through the cross. In that very moment, Jesus is paying for this robber's sin. This robber turns to him in repentance and faith. He doesn't do anything to deserve it. He doesn't do anything to earn such grace. He simply confesses his sin and accepts Jesus for who he is. And the question is, will we do the same? Will we do the same? Will we accept Jesus for who he is? Will we confess our sin and accept him and receive that forgiveness, receive that reconciliation with him and then ultimately receive a changed life. If this man had lived past this moment, he would have also had the blessing, the pleasure of experiencing the joy of a changed life because Jesus offers us forgiveness of sin, but then he also offers us a new life. He, he offers to change us, to make us new people. Ephesians once again shows us what the life of an ex-thief looks like. It says this, Ephesians 4.28, that the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. God wants to change people who steal from being takers to being givers. He wants to change people from being selfish to selfless. That we would look more like Jesus. That we would look like Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. And that brings us on to our last two commands. It says this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. Jesus calls people to be like him and Jesus is truth and therefore Jesus calls us to be bearers of truth, not liars. Focusing on the scenario, in, in this case, in this commandment, when somebody is called forward and most likely within a court of law to testify as a witness against their neighbour, they must be truthful. But this is not limited to courts of law, but rather our whole lives should be marked by truth rather than lies. When we, when we lie, we reflect Satan more than we do Jesus. John 8, 44 says this. This is Jesus and 
once again, he's getting straight to the point with the religious leaders. He says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a liar and there is no truth in him. And we are called to be different. We are called to be men and women of truth. We are called to be proclaimers of truth. Protectors of truth. And the, the way we know truth is through his word. And as we know truth, it leads to life. One of my favourite verses, John 8, 31 says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide, and that word abide means to remain, if you remain in my word, you are, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth leads to freedom. The way we find and experience this truth is through Jesus, is through his word. Because as Jesus said himself, I am the way, I am the truth and I am the life. In Jesus we find truth and in Jesus we find life and in Jesus we find freedom. In Jesus we find satisfaction and ultimately in Jesus we find contentment. The last commandment says that we're going to look at today, you shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. This final command is all to do about contentment. God calls his people not to covet, to desire, not to desire, not to lust after another person's possessions or spouse. And we can all be easily guilty of this. And some of it we've already kind of looked at before and the preceding commandments kind of cover some of it. It is that moment when you look at someone else and you begin to say to yourself, I wish I had their life. I wish I had their job. I wish I had their salary. I wish they had their body. I wish, they, I, wish I had their family, their spouse. And the list goes on. And if that is our heart, it will not become long before we are consumed with jealousy. And we'll either respond in absolute despair because we, we, we can't have that which we are lusting after or rather we'll end up trying to take it by force. We'll try and take it ourselves. And if you find yourself in that position, you find yourself constantly looking at others and constantly coveting after what they have, there is hope. God calls us to be content with what we have. And that may seem like an impossible call. But there have been people who have come before who have learnt what it means to enjoy this life giving state of contentment. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 4, 11 to 12. He says this, Now that I am speaking... Sorry, let me say it again. 
not that I am speaking or being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The answer to your problem is not acquiring the thing that you lost you is not acquiring the thing that you lust after. The problem isn't you have too little. Because even if you have plenty, you can still be discontent and you just have to look at the world around us. Some of the richest people are the most miserable people. And as Paul said, he learned to be content in moments of plenty and moments of little. But how? How does he do it? It was something that he had to learn. It didn't come naturally to him, and I'm pretty sure it doesn't come naturally to most of us. There is a secret, and that secret is Jesus. Next verse, verse 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That verse is, comes straight after what he just says about contentment. We often take that verse, it's a great verse, but sometimes we take it out of context. Let me read the whole three verses again. It says, Now that I'm speaking, sorry, not that I'm speaking or being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He is content in all situations because of him who strengthens Paul and that is Jesus. Jesus is the one who strengthens him. Contentment comes from satisfaction in Christ. That which we all ultimately long for is not found in created things but it is rather found in the Creator, God. In closing, it says, in relation to that, it says this, Philippians 3, and verse 8 to 11, Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Let me say it again. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I, by any means possible, may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Jesus, having a personal relationship with Jesus himself, Paul says, surpasses all things. It is this relationship with Jesus that motivates us 
and enables us to keep all of the commands. I love how he goes from knowing Jesus and then he reminds us of the gospel. He says, look, I don't have a righteousness of my own, but rather my righteousness comes from Christ. Hopefully that you would have seen today at least one of these six commandments that we've looked at today, there's at least one of them you must have broken. One of them you must have failed to keep. And as a result, we find ourselves in that position where we are unrighteous. And yet Jesus Christ dies on the cross and when we put our faith in him, his righteousness, so his right standing before God, his perfection, all of his law keeping, then gets accounted to us. And then as we know him and as we walk with him, he begins to change us. It is us knowing Jesus, us knowing him personally, that A, gives, gives us the joy of knowing his forgiveness when we fail, but then also becomes the motivation to change. And you remember what we saw right at the beginning, that's what we see. God reminds the people of who he is and what he's done for them. Because it is that knowledge that will ultimately enable us to keep the law. Not so we earn God's love, but because we already have it. Because as we walk in relationship with him, we know that as a loving father, he wants the best for us. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to experience abundance of life. And as we do so, as we are forgiven when we fail and empowered so we don't have to, we begin to experience the life that he always intended. We begin to see that we are set free to live free. So as we go away today and as we pray, take the time this evening, this week, to prayerfully come to Jesus and be like, hey Jesus, firstly I want to thank you for the areas where I've seen change in my life. I want to thank you for the areas, Lord, I didn't used to keep this and now I I see myself doing it. I didn't even have a desire to want to follow you, but now I do, Father. First of all, I want to thank you for the changes you've done, but now, as I walk with you, Lord, where am I falling short? What areas of my life need to be adjusted? What areas of my life need to change? What areas of my life am I falling short? And as he exposes them, then turn to him and confess your sin. Be honest with God and then forsake that sin. Run away from it. Cut it off. Get away and as far of it as possible. And then as you do so, enjoy Christ. Because that's what it's all about. All of these laws, as Jesus says, all of these commands, it ultimately comes down to this, that we would love God and that we would love others. In essence, the law just exposes where we're falling short. The law exposes where we're falling short in our love for God. It exposes where we're falling short in our love for others. And in those moments, we turn to the cross and we say, Jesus, I'm guilty. And as we do so, we receive his forgiveness. And as we do so, he begins to change us. The gospel not only saves us, but then the gospel is also changes us. And that's the good news of Jesus. That he would forgive us when we fail and then change us so we don't have to. Let's pray together. Jesus, you're good. 
Lord, you're good and we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you would you give us these laws, Lord. That you would seek to tell us and to show us how to live, Lord. And, and we, conf- we confess, Lord, that we have fallen short. We confess, Lord, we have not lived our lives as we should have done. And even moments now we still fail, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough. You knew we, we wouldn't be able to keep the law, so then you came and you kept it for us. And then you died on the cross and then you were punished for all those moments we failed to keep it. And now, even now, you live inside of us, for those who have accepted you, you live inside of us, and now changing us so we actually can even begin to keep the law. Isn't that amazing? Lord, we want to thank you for that amazing truth, Lord. You came and kept the law when we couldn't. You came and took the punishment for the law that we couldn't keep. And then you also live inside of us to change us, Lord. As we go away today, Lord, may we not forget that. May we leave today with that hope, with that good news, with that message. Lord, that that would comfort us, Lord. That that message would change us, Lord. That that message would give us hope and joy, Lord. So, Lord, I ask that as, as we leave here, you would give us a greater desire for you. Lord, show us what it means to truly walk with you, to truly know you, to truly love you. And then as we love you, Lord, then empower us to love others. Empower us to change, Lord. Empower us to demonstrate that same love that we have experienced, God. And we want to thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you came to set us free and now you enable us to live free. So Jesus We offer all these things to you, Lord, and we say, yes, Lord, may you do these things in our lives. Lord, as we come to you in repentance, may you forgive us. May you change us. Lord, we lift all of these things up to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.